0: All right, let's pray. And uh, before we pray, let me just remind you why we pray. Because we recognize that we need him, as that song said. And we desperately need his spirit to be at work today. So let me pray. Um, Father, we are asking that you would work today among us, that your spirit would be active. We know that this is not just some lecture that we're going to, this is an opportunity to hear from your word. And so we're praying today that your spirit would be with us, that it would work in us in a powerful way, that we would be challenged by your word, that we would be convicted by your word, and especially today that we would be encouraged by your word. Father, we recognize that this is a topic that will touch everyone. When we talk about death, we're talking about a, a topic that is far-reaching. In fact, it reaches to every person in this room. And we're praying today that what we read would be encouraging. In some cases, we're praying that it would be life-giving because we know that maybe there are some today who desperately need these words of hope. In fact, I'm confident that every person today desperately needs these words in 1 Thessalonians 4. And so we're praying that you would speak That you would work, that you would convict, that your Holy Spirit would uh, do a massive work in this congregation today. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I met Mike Shelton within the first few weeks of being at college. For a while, I didn't even know that his name was Mike Shelton. I just knew him as The Animal. I met Mike Shelton playing Ultimate Frisbee just for the sake of, of maybe being able to understand this story. I'll try to describe Ultimate Frisbee as best as I can. It's kind of like football. Uh, your goal is to cross the goal line, except instead of a football, you use a Frisbee. Instead of running with it, you have to pass it. And Instead of tackling, there is no tackling. So in other words, it's really nothing like football at all, but I just can't really think of a better illustration to say it's kind of like football. But anyway, I was playing Ultimate Frisbee. I'd never played before. Some guys on my dorm floor invited me to go play Ultimate Frisbee with them. And so, since I didn't really know anyone, I didn't have any friends at the time, I'd just come to college. I thought, yeah, sure, I'll go play Ultimate Frisbee. And I don't remember much about that first game I ever played, but I do remember the man they referred to as the animal. Now, let's be honest. You don't get a nickname like the animal because you're timid and you're kind of uninvolved in the game. You get a nickname, a nickname like the animal because you play like your hair is on fire. You play like you're crazy, right? And that is exactly what Mike Shelton was like. He was all over the place. He seemed to have an endless supply of energy. He could track down Frisbees that no one else would dare to track down. He was like a human golden lab sna- snagging Frisbees out of the air. It was incredible. This guy was willing to sacrifice his body in every way possible. I don't know how many times I saw him dive for a Frisbee that first time we played. I'll put it this way, no one had to explain to me why they called him the animal. Within fir- the first five minutes of the game, I knew exactly why they referred to this man as the animal, because that's exactly what he was like. He was a beast. Now, over the course of that fall, I would play Ultimate Frisbee with Mike or the, the, the animal a couple of more times, but I didn't really get to know the man behind the nickname until later that fall. As I've mentioned before, I became a Christian my freshman year of college through the faithful witness of a man named Mark Walter. Well, just so it turns out that Mark Walter had also happened to run across Mike at some point. And similar to my story, Mark had shared with Mike, the animal, the good news of Jesus Christ. And just how God had worked in my life, this Holy Spirit opened Mike's eyes, and he came to believe that he was a sinner and that Christ was a great Savior. Now, I don't know exactly the timeline, but I think it actually happened at a pretty similar time. And that's actually how I got to know Mike as more than just a man who plays Ultimate Frisbee, but as a friend. It was through our mutual friend, and I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say, our spiritual father, Mark Walter. And the more I got to know Mike, the more I realized that Mike was just like he played Ultimate Frisbee. He lived life just like he played Ultimate Frisbee, with an unbelievable amount of energy and enthusiasm. He was incredibly passionate, incredibly engaging. The man was full of life. He's one of those people that you meet, and immediately you will always remember him because he had a zest for life which is why it was so surprising that within the first six months of meeting Mike, he was dead. They found him dead at the bottom of the swimming pool on campus at the University of Northern Iowa. It didn't make any sense at the time. And in fact, 15 years later, it still doesn't make a ton of sense. Mike was an incredible athlete. He was incredibly fit. To top it off, he was a state champion swimmer. How does a guy like that drown? Well, it turns out, after they did an autopsy, that Mike had suffered a heart attack at the age of 19. At the age of 19, and I don't remember all the details that had happened around that event, in fact, I hope I'm relaying them as accurately as I can remember, but what I do remember with striking clarity is that Mike's death shook me up. It had a profound impact on my life. It's not to say that it was the first time I'd ever been around death. At that point in my life, all four of my grandparents had already died, but I think Mike's death was the first time that I paused to reflect on my own mortality. And I realized that if Mike, the animal, could die, I realized that I could die too. It was certainly the first time as a Christian that I was processing what it looked like or what it felt like to experience the death of someone that I knew. At the time, I have to be honest, I just didn't know what to make of his death. Didn't know what to make of it. I remember talking with Mark, our mutual spiritual father, about this issue and just trying to work through it and try to figure out how do I make sense of this? What is God doing? Why is this happening? I'm guessing you might have been there too. Maybe you've lost someone that you knew, or maybe you've lost a friend or grandparent, a parent, a neighbor. Someone you love died. And if you haven't been there, certainly at some point you will be. The question is, and this is really why we gather together every Sunday, how should we think about events like this as Christians? What is it that the Word of God would impart to us that helps us to think through issues like this differently? Because the reality is that if we are followers of Christ, and if we believe that this Word is true— then we will look at issues, even like death, completely differently. So how is it that we should respond to events like this? Well, I think what 1 Thessalonians would tell us is that if the person who died is a believer, and by the way, that if makes all the difference. If we're not using that word, if that if isn't there, if the person is a believer, if they're not a believer, this is a completely different discussion. But if they are a believer, then we will grieve, but we will grieve with hope. And that's exactly the message of 1 Thessalonians 4. So let's read again. This is a powerful passage. It's a powerful passage. Verse 13. And again, let me remind you as we set to read this. This is the Word of God. Starting in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. encourage one another with these words i think verse 13 is the key to understanding the tone of this passage look at what it says again in verse 13 we do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope paul does not want the thessalonians to be uninformed about those who are asleep for the record sleep was a commonly used metaphor at the time to describe someone who had died In much the same way that we would say something like rest in peace. That's the same thing that's being conveyed here. We don't need to read some deep theological truth into this. This is just a common way of saying those who have died. And what Paul is saying here at the beginning of chapter 4, or I guess at the end of chapter 4, is that he does not want the Thessalonians to be uninformed about those who have died. And specifically about the Thessalonian believers who have died. Again, I think he's addressing the death of those who believe in Christ. And the reason he wants them to be informed is so that they can grieve with hope. That is the tone of this passage. The tone of this passage is that it's meant to encourage and it's meant to give hope. Now, the reason that Paul is writing about this is likely there's some confusion about the second coming of Christ. It seems likely that the people were confused about when Jesus would come. They were under the impression that Jesus was going to come immediately. And so they're confused that some of the people they loved who are believers are dying. They can't figure it out. And it seems that they're also concerned that maybe they would be at a disadvantage, that they wouldn't be able to celebrate the return of Christ in the same way. And so that's why Paul is writing here. He wants to clear up any confusion. He wants to clear up any areas that they are uninformed. And so to do that, Paul writes here, and he says, I want you to be informed. I don't want you to be uninformed, is how he says it, so that you can grieve with hope. Now listen, if ever there was a passage that would be relevant for every person in this room, this is it. Right? This is it. Every single person in this room will face the reality of death at some point. And while this passage encourages Christians that we should grieve with hope, even in the midst of death, I think it's also important for us to note that while it's true we have hope, it's also true that we will still grieve. So we don't want to just wash over this and say, oh, this is is all a message of hope. There is still a reality here that even as Christians, we will still grieve the death of those who are in Christ. Listen, I can hardly bear the thought losing my family. The thought of my wife dying, for example, it terrifies me. If that happened, I can't even begin to fathom the depths of grief that I would feel. But here's the point of 1 Thessalonians 4, that even though that's true, even though we may experience unbelievable grief at the death of loved ones, if they are in Christ, then that grief is still a grief filled with hope. And it's not a false hope based on empty promises. Listen, we've all been in situations where people have proclaimed a hope that we know is just nothing but empty words. I've been at multiple funerals in my life where people have tried to convey some sort sort of hope that's not connected to Christ, and I knew, and I think maybe even the person preaching it knew, that that was no real hope. Listen, the hope that we are conveying is a hope that is based on the unchanging promises of the Word of God. Listen, death, as you know, is a reality for all people. Christian or non-Christian, death will affect all of us, but the difference, and this is a huge difference, is that we grieve as those who have hope. I remember several years ago now, I think it was about the time my sister was graduating from high school, so maybe three or four years ago, um, my family made our way back to Iowa to visit my parents, uh, Tanya, and I think at the time we had two or three kids, somewhere in there. We have have a lot of kids, I I can't keep track, but we had two or three kids at the time, so we went back to Iowa I remember one night, my brother and my sister and I, we were reminiscing about all the days growing up in Sheraton, Iowa, all the good old times back in rural Iowa growing up. And so we were flipping through our old high school yearbooks. I don't know if they do that here in New York. I assume that they have high school yearbooks. But if not, it's just basically a, a book of photos, right? Like keeping track of your high school career. So we were flipping through the yearbooks. And I remember we got to the end of one of them. I think it was actually my sister's. And the very last page of the yearbook was a tribute to a girl who had died in her class that year. There was a girl who'd passed away in a car accident over the course of that year. And so the last page of the yearbook was a page that was written in memory of her. Obviously it was a terrible and a tragic event. And so in this yearbook page, there's this this page that was written that was both moving, it was incredibly moving, and at the same time incredibly haunting. I couldn't help but be moved by the grief I could sense as this person was writing. I think it was the person's cousin. And you could sense the pain and you could sense the grief. It was just oozing off the page. It was, it was so moving because you could just sense how, pain, how much grief and pain she was feeling. But what was missing and what made it so haunting is that there was no hope. Now, for the record, I, I don't know this girl who passed away and I know nothing of whether she had a relationship with Christ or not. So I'm not speculating on that. I'm just speculating on what I saw on this page and what I distinctly remember reading as I read that tribute page and what I remember feeling as I I, I sensed this great grief, and sadly, I realized that there was no hope. As I read the passage over and over, and as I was moved, as I read this page over and over, I realized that while this grief is real, there was no hope. There was no hope. And that hopelessness, it was suffocating. It was suffocating. Sadly, I've been to um, some funerals of even my relatives, and I've heard... I've heard sermons that are given, and I know that there's no basis of real hope in those sermons. It's suffocating, isn't it? A grief without hope is just hard to deal with. But here's the point of 1 Thessalonians 4. As Christians, even in the midst of pain, even in the midst of death, we grieve as those who have hope. And that hope, as laid out in verses 14 through 17, is based on two it's based on the fact that Jesus died and rose again. And then the second builds on that. The first is the foundation for the second. The second hope is that those who are in Christ will be resurrected with him. So our hope is based first and foremost on this, that Jesus died and he rose again. Look at verse 14, the very beginning part of verse 14. It says this, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. All right, it's pretty straightforward. As believers in Christ, we believe that Jesus came He came to earth, he was fully God and fully man, and he lived a perfect life. He lived the life that we could not live. The fact of the matter is that we are incapable of keeping the law. The Ten Commandments, other moral laws, we are incapable of keeping them perfectly because we are sinful. We have a sinful nature and we will always rebel against God. But there was one, Jesus, who came and lived the life that we could not live. And then he died the death that we were to die. He took on the wrath of God on our behalf, despite the fact that we were the ones who deserved it. He was the one who took the wrath of God on our behalf. So he lived a life we could not live, and he died the death that we were to die. And then, three days later, he rose from the dead. And in his resurrection, he conquered death. Listen, the importance of the resurrection cannot be overstated. We like to talk a lot about the cross, and we should, rightfully so. It's because of what Jesus did on the cross that our sins can be forgiven. I think sometimes we underestimate or we don't talk enough about the importance of the resurrection. As 1 Corinthians 15 argues, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, our faith is meaningless. In fact, let me quote directly from 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. I think that explains why Paul says what he does at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15. Which, by the way, in terms of the resurrection, no passage is as helpful or as thorough as 1 Corinthians 15. But at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15, he says this, I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. This is an issue of first importance. Listen, the resurrection is not a fairy tale that we made up so that we can look for Easter eggs on Easter morning. It's not a fairy tale that we made up so that we can celebrate the Easter bunny or so that we can have another excuse to have a holiday. No, the resurrection, as 1 Corinthians 15 states, is of utmost importance. It's of utmost importance. All of Christianity rises and falls with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christ died on the cross, and three days later, he rose from the dead. This is a fact that is assumed throughout the New Testament. And in fact, it's mentioned here rather matter-of-factly in 1 Thessalonians 4. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. It's assumed, but let's not skip over it. This is an issue of utmost importance. If Jesus really did raise from the dead, then that changes everything. And by the way, I think you can be 100% confident that Jesus did rise from the dead. And not just because the Bible tells us, although listen... If the Bible was the only place we read about this, that would be enough. This is the word of God. There's no higher authority that we can appeal to. But I would also argue that historical evidence would also corroborate what we read in the Bible, that Jesus really did rise from the dead. I was reading an apologetics book several years ago, and I remember this quote. I found it this week. It's from a guy named Professor Thomas Arnold, formerly the chair of Modern History at Oxford and author of a three-volume book entitled The History of Rome. In other words, this is a guy who knows how to study history. He says this about the resurrection. I've been used for many years to study the histories of other times and to examine and weigh the evidence of those who've written about them. And I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which is proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort to the understanding of a fair inquire than the great sign which God has given us that Christ died and rose again. No one fact. In the same book, British scholar Brooks Foss Westcott says this, taking all the evidence together, it's not too much to say that there is no historic incident better or more variously supported than the resurrection of Christ. Now listen, you may say, well, they come at it with presuppositions, or they may have ideas in mind when they're saying, that may be true. But listen, the fact of the matter is that there is historical evidence in addition to the biblical evidence. And again, the biblical evidence is far more important. This is the Word of God. But there's also historical evidence that would lead us to believe, and not only believe, but to have complete certainty that Jesus really did rise from the dead you can have complete confidence that he did not stay in the grave. That yes, he was crucified, but three days later he was alive. And that gives us hope. And that is the foundation for the second piece that makes all the difference here. The first hope we have is that Jesus died and rose again. And then the second one, which builds on the first, is that we believe that those who are in Christ will be resurrected with him. Look at verse 14 again. Verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again... Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, we too can have hope that we can conquer death as well. Now this is true in a spiritual sense. This is true in a spiritual sense. Turn back to Romans 8 for just a minute here. Romans 8, verses 10 and 11. So back to your left a little bit, or if you're using your phone, you can just type in Romans 8. But otherwise, if you're using Bible, flip back, Romans chapter 8, verses 10 and 11. All right, so uh, we are resurrected in a spiritual sense. Romans 8, verses 10 and 11. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now, Romans 8, I think, not only does it give us an indication that we are spiritually resurrected when we believe in Christ, it also gives us an indication that there's something that will happen physically as well that's what 1 Thessalonians 4 is talking about. Not only are we spiritually raised from the dead, the Bible would say that all those who are apart from Christ are dead in their transgressions and sins. And when you believe in Christ, you are made alive. That's 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if he was in Christ, he's a new creation. But in addition to that, one day when Christ returns, our bodies will be physically resurrected to reign with him as well. That's the testimony of verses 15 through 17 of 1 Thessalonians 4. So again, back to our main passage, verse fifteen. For this we declare to you by word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will excuse me, will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Now, here's the danger. I think it would be really easy for us to miss the forest through the trees here. What I mean is, it would be really easy for us to get bogged down in the details of this passage and forget the big picture, to see the trees but miss that we're in a forest. All right, so it would be really easy for us to start wondering, well, what about this archangel? Archangel. But what about this trumpet call, or what about the clouds, or all these things, right? And we could start to wonder about all these things, and we can miss the point of the passage. And we could start to debate theological points. Is this arguing for pre-mill, or post-mill, or a And if those don't mean anything to you, don't worry. Those are just fancy theological terms that I don't know if anyone really knows exactly what they mean, right? Like, but there, we could have all these arguments about theological things from this. But that's not the point of this passage. That's not the point of this passage. The point of this passage is to encourage those who are grieving, it gives a simple basic outline that Jesus Christ himself is coming again. He's coming again. That the dead in Christ will be raised first, that the living and the dead who are in Christ will be then taken up together to meet the Lord, and that we will be with him always. That's the simple outline that is given here. Is there more that Paul could have said? Well, absolutely, right? There's probably a million things that we're still wondering. He left all kinds of things out. For example, he doesn't even mention the fact that those who are not in Christ will also be raised and will face judgment. And there's a million other things like that that we read elsewhere or maybe that we don't know about at all that are not mentioned here. But that's not the point. The point of this passage is not to give us a theological statement about the end times to help us develop our eschatology, which is just the theology of the end times. That's not what the point of this passage is. And the point of this passage is to encourage those who are grieving to give hope it's to remind us that those who are in christ will be with him forever and listen that is the hope it's the hope that we have as those who are believers in christ now it's also the hope that we have for those who have died and are in christ those who have died and this is one of the things he's arguing are at no disadvantage when it comes to the second coming of christ if they know christ they too will be resurrected and together we will be with the lord forever Now, one thing he doesn't address here, but I think is maybe worth saying just to to not have any confusion. The Bible does seem clear that when we die, immediately, in some sense, we go to be with the Lord. That our soul goes to be with Him. But the second coming of Christ, our bodies will then be resurrected. We'll be given a new body and we'll reign with Him forever. And that's the point of verse 17, that we will be with Him. And that is the hope that Paul is speaking to here. That's the hope that he's speaking to here. I remember reading an article a couple of years ago that talked about the fact that people are more afraid to speak publicly than they are of death. Now, of course, as a person who speaks in public, I was interested in this article, and I remembered it. And so this week, I thought I would go back and see if I could find it. And I don't know if I found the same article, but I found a similar list. It's put out by the book of lists, and it's the top ten human fears. It goes like this. Number one is speaking before a group. Two is heights. Three is insects and bugs. Four is financial problems. Five is deep water. Six is sickness. Seven is death. Eight is flying. Nine is loneliness. And ten is dogs. Now, let me say this, all right? Um, there's a couple of things about this list that I don't buy. One is, I can't believe snakes aren't on here, all right? I mean, come on. Are you really telling me people are more afraid of the dogs than snakes? Uh, they must not be like me. Snakes would be up there for me. I'll, I'll just be honest, all right? So I, I'm a little skeptical of the list because there's no snakes, but I'm also, I'm a little skeptical of the fact that death is number seven. Now, I, I'm not saying that the book of lists just made this up or that they didn't ask people. In fact, um, I think I could see how people might not answer this. But it seems unlikely to me that death would be number seven. After all, the reason why you're afraid of deep water or heights is because you're afraid of dying, right? So I'm a little skeptical of death being number seven, but I think I understand why it would be the seventh answer that people would give. Because the fact of the matter is, people do not like to think about death. And even if you answer a question like this, what are you most afraid of, and you say death, at that point you have to think about the fact that you are afraid of death and no one likes to think about it. We all kind of know what it's like to speak publicly. We've all had to give an answer in class at some point. And so that's a fear we're aware of. Same with bugs and insects. But death is the great unknown. It's the great unknown. And so we don't like to think about it. And yet, listen, it's the reality that every single person in this room faces. I've heard it said before, and it's still true, that the mortality rate in the United States is the same as it was 200 years ago. 100%. That's the way it'll always be, barring the return of Christ. No one in this room will escape death. And I know that some of you who are younger, the, the 13-year-olds, the 14-year-olds, the 16-year-olds, you don't believe me that it's coming for you. But trust me, it's coming for you also. It's coming for all of us. But here's the hope we have. Here's the hope we have. That if we are in Christ, because he conquered death, we will too. We'll still die of physical death, but we are in Christ. If we're in Christ, we will reign with him forever. And I would just ask, is there any better news than that? That if we are in Christ, that we will be with Him forever? I would submit there is no better news. And I would say, if you walked in here today, and I don't know what your state was when you walked in here today. Maybe you walked into the sanctuary today and you know nothing of Christ. Or maybe you've been going to church for all of your life, and yet you've never actually committed to following Christ. You've never come to the point where you've turned from your sin and trusted in Him. I would beg of you, I would plead with you, I would urge you, that there is no better news today than you can turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. And if you do, your sins will be forgiven and you will be with him forever. You will be with him forever. And that is the good news that we all need to remember, that we will be with him forever. That is the good news of First Thessalonians 4. Listen, I don't know what you think of when you think of heaven. Maybe you think of angels playing harps, or maybe you think of people taking a nap on the clouds, or maybe you think of an eternal church service. I just want to tell you, and this will be really good news for some of you, I don't think it's going to be like that at all. And it'll be really good news for some of you because an hour and a half church service is just about as long as you can take. And the idea of an eternal church service just scares you. But I don't think heaven's going to be like that at all. i do not going to be wrong. I think we'll worship. I think it'll be constant worship. But we'll love it. And I don't know what it will look like. I suspect it won't be one long, unending church service. But trust me, if it is, there'll be a much better preacher. Right? Praise God for that. Here's the thing, the best part of heaven, the best part of heaven is that we'll be with him. I don't know what you think of when you first think of heaven. Maybe you think of being reunited with loved ones, or maybe you think of death, or no more death, no more pain, no more sorrow. Maybe you think of the streets paved with gold. That's all well and good. But if you think of heaven, if your picture of heaven doesn't have God in it, rest assured it's not heaven. It's not heaven. Because the best part of heaven is that we will be with him. Let's never lose sight of that. That is the best part. And incidentally, I would argue that is why every Sunday we should always talk about Jesus. That's why every Sunday should always come back to the Savior. Because our goal is not to fall more in love with rules. Our goal is not to fall more in love with religion. Our goal is not to fall more in love with knowledge. Our goal is to fall more in love with the Savior the Savior that rescues us from our sin, and the Savior that we will be with forever. I think sometimes we get so focused on the here and now that we forget that the best part is still to come. And that's exactly why verse 18 is so crucial in this passage. Listen to what verse 18 says. Verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another with these words. Our natural tendency is to forget that we were not made for this world. Our natural tendency is to become obsessed with the things that everyone else is obsessed with. Our natural tendency is to not think about the life to come. Our natural tendency is to be discouraged when things go poorly here. Our natural tendency is to be more worried about tomorrow or next week than we are with eternity. Our natural tendency is to talk about fluff more than we talk about Christ. Our natural tendency is to grieve without hope. Our natural tendency is to think that paradise is here not there. Our natural tendency is to build up treasures here on this earth and not in heaven. And that is exactly why we need to encourage one another with these words. To remind one another that if we are in Christ, one day we will be with Him. And that day, listen, that day will be far better than today. To echo the words of the book of Philippians, it would be far better to die and to be with Christ. I don't know exactly who said this. I've heard it attributed to Charles Spurgeon over the years, but it goes something like this. Are you feeling sad? Cheer up. Today could be your last day on earth. He says it again. The best thing that could happen to a Christian is that they would die. Now, whether Spurgeon actually said that or not is irrelevant. The point is, I think it's true. The best thing that could happen to a Christian is that we would die because we would be with him. Now, it'll be terrible for those who are left behind, but in reality, for those who are believers, what is better to be stuck here on this earth that's messed up with sin and sorrow and grief and pain, or to be with him, where there is no more sorrow or pain or grief. That's why we need to encourage one another with these words. We need to remind each other that the best is still to come. Now, of course, this is a parenthetical note. That doesn't mean that we should decide when we take our own lives. If it's better to be with Christ, we shouldn't take the logic. Well, let's just all go take a suicide pill today. That's a faulty way of thinking. Obviously, if God has us here, he has us here for a reason. And I would argue that one of those reasons is so that we can tell more people about this. And so we shouldn't make a decision when we end our lives, but we should look forward to that day. We should long for that day. It'll be better by far than today. We need to remind each other because it's so easy to forget this. I just have to admit, um, having four small kids in our house, some days is really hard. It's really tiring. It wears me out. Some days I feel like I'm one more meltdown from melting down myself. And some days that meltdown comes, and I melt down. And sometimes, usually, hopefully it's internally, hopefully it's not externally, but I feel that meltdown. And some days when I hear crying, I think I'm going to go to my room and cry, right? Honestly, it can be really, really tiring and really easy to complain about. But you know what helps? When I can remind myself of the big picture. When I can remind myself that children are a blessing from God and that the greatest way I can advance the gospel The easiest way I can make disciples on this earth is to make disciples with my kids. If ever I will have a chance to make disciples, it will be with my kids. Because they see all my flaws. They see all the things that hopefully I'm doing for Christ. It's actually the built-in mechanism of discipleship. It's the greatest opportunity. And if by God's grace I can raise my kids up in a way that they are able to see the truth of the gospel, and God opens their eyes so they can see it, It's the one way in which my legacy is most likely to last even after I'm far gone and dead, right? Because if I invest in my children and they invest in their children, the legacy can continue to go on and on. And if I can remind myself of that truth, if I can remind myself of the big picture, then the meltdowns don't seem so bad and the crying seems less chaotic. Now, I still want to pull my hair out sometimes, but if I can remember that, it changes everything. And oftentimes... Oftentimes, it takes my wife reminding me of that truth in order for me to see that. Her encouragement helps me to see the big picture. The same is true with eternity. We need to encourage one another to see the big picture. We need to remind one another that Christ is coming again. We need to remind each other that we will be with Christ forever. Now, a word of caution here I think there's a way of encouraging that's not really encouraging. What I mean is this, if, if someone in the congregation loses a parent or they lose a spouse or they lose a child, we shouldn't all race over there as fast as we can and say things like, hey, today's a great day. They're with Jesus. Hey, don't worry. This is exactly part of God's plan. That may be true, but at that moment, it's not helpful. At that moment, we just need to cry and pray. We need to bring meals and give them a hug They'll probably just not say a whole lot, but that's why passages like this are so important because we are sowing the seed now and praying that it will bear fruit later. We're sowing the seed. The best thing that could happen to a Christian is that they would die. And we're praying that when that moment of grief comes, that that plant would grow up and it would take root in that person's life. And so hear me, even if you feel like this passage is not relevant today, I assure you at some point it will be. That's why it's so important that we take words like this to heart, that we sow the seed now so that when the difficulty comes, the plant will grow up and we'll have hope in the midst of a dry and weary land. That's why passages like this matter. This passage is meant to be a passage of hope that sustains us and encourages us, especially when we need sustained and encouraged. Now, are there other things that we can take from this passage? Are there other implications? Well, of course there are. Should we be more urgent in telling people about Jesus? I would argue that yes, we should. Should we live differently knowing that Christ will return? I would argue that yes, we should. In fact, next week, that's the exact argument that 1 Thessalonians 5 is going to make. But that's not the point of this particular passage. The point of this passage is that it's meant to offer hope. It's meant to be encouraging. It's meant to give comfort. you know what? I would say it does exactly that. When Mike Shelton died in the swimming pool, you know what it was that brought me around? You know what ended up allowing me to come out of this kind of funk that I was in in the stupor of wondering, what do I make to this? What ended up bringing me to a place of joy and hope? It was passages like this one. Because when I think of Mike Shelton, here's what I think of now. I think of the fact that I'm so grateful that my friend Mark shared with him and that by God's grace, he came to know Christ because that made all the difference, didn't it? When his body was cold and lifeless on the bottom of that swimming pool, there was still life there's still hope. And that hope is that Mike is now with Christ and one day his body will be resurrected to be with him forever. And listen, that is the hope that is offered to every person in this room also. That if you will trust in Christ, one day you will reign with him forever. I just want you to know that that is a hope that changes everything. That is a hope that never ceases. That is a hope that you can count on. And that is a hope that you can look to even on the darkest day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great hope that is offered in your word here in First Thessalonians chapter 4. We thank you that there is a great hope that Jesus rose from the dead, and because of that, those who trusted in Christ will be resurrected with him also. We know this is an issue that we don't think about much, but we're praying that it would be something we think about today, and that we would examine our hearts and figure out, are we truly in you? Do we have a relationship with you? Because we know in the end that makes all of the difference. Certainly we're praying that if times of grief are to come, or even as we look back on believers who have already died, we're praying that a passage like this would encourage us greatly. That your word would sink down deep into our hearts. That it would minister to us today. That it would give us hope where maybe we're feeling hopeless. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.